0: I'm Van Jones and this is Uncommon Ground. Welcome back to Uncommon Ground. This is the show where we're exploring what it takes to make meaningful change in a country as divided as our country has become. I'm Van Jones. You know, I would say divided and now, you know, somewhat deflated. <laughs> it is a tough time and I, I know that a lot of people out there are feeling very discouraged. And I certainly have been feeling more discouraged. I mean, the news is just relentless. When I feel down, I always try to find people who lift me up. I always try to find people who maybe had a a rougher hand, like a worse hand dealt to them than myself, and yet somehow are still being beautiful, making change, taking risks, making things happen. Because that's what we need. You know, we need more resilience, we need more courage. And a lot of times I don't think I have enough. Luckily, I know some people who do. And one of the people who I turn to over and over again is a young woman named Brittany Barnett. I want you to hear from her today because I think you're going to be lifted up by her example. You know, she grew up rough, tough. You can imagine, you know, mom trying to figure out some way to put food on the table, making a decision she thinks is going to help her kids and winds up having to leave her kids behind you think, well, that kid's screwed. That kid's not going to make it. She decided she was going to make it. Uh, and she winds up going to law school and getting a job in the banking industry. And then she decides to leave all that behind to turn around and help people like her mom. And she has been unbelievably successful in getting clemency for people, getting people out of jail. But what I want you to take away from her is that it's not always the people in the limelight. It's not always the people who've got the big titles. It's not always the person, you know, who's called a senator or a governor. That just regular folks who give a damn can sometimes get great stuff done against all kinds of odds. So whatever you're going through today, whatever you're going through this week, I just want you to know that the end of this story hasn't been written yet. And real miraculous successes are possible. And one of the people in our country who gets miraculous success after miraculous success accomplished for people who really don't have anything at all is Brittany Barnett. And I think you're going to enjoy hearing from her after this break.
2: If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you.
0: Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500, 500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500, 500. We have had a, an amazing journey toward justice together, and I'm so glad to have you on the podcast to talk about it. Yeah, you, know, you, you say so many things are so profound, and uh, you've had such a big impact on the movement overall. One of the things that you've said is that when one person goes to prison, the whole family goes to prison. I just think that's a good place to start because I think that that it's, it's so profound. I think people don't think about that. Tell me about this work. What motivates you, and why that sentence is so powerful in your own life?
2: Yeah, that sentence is incredibly powerful in my own life because I experienced it firsthand. I grew up in rural East Texas, black daughter of the rural South, and. Had a loving, extended family. My mom was a single mother doing what she could, you know, the best that she could to take care of my sister and I. She put herself through nursing school. Unfortunately, she developed an addiction to drugs that became much stronger than she was at the time. And that ultimately led to her going to prison when I was a young adult. And so I experienced firsthand that when one person goes to prison the entire family goes, you know, and it's devastating to have any loved one incarcerated. But I can say from from firsthand experience, it is a primal wound yeah, when it's yeah. your mama.
0: You know, um, you know, I think that part of the reason that you are who you are and you've been able to do what you've been able to do is because, you know, you've turned that pain into, into power and into promise. And that's part of why I want you know, you to be a part of this uncommon ground community and conversation because breakdowns can become breakthroughs if we use them right. But it takes courage and it takes people doing stuff that's outside of the of the norm. Uh, you worked in banking. Uh, you worked in corporate law. And I mean, you were kind of headed in a very, I would say, you know, successful mainstream corporate direction. And then suddenly you made a decision to do something very different. Talk about that.
2: Yeah. Growing up, Van, I always wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be like Claire Huxtable on the (laughs) show. And unfortunately, you know, there are not a lot of lawyers in East Texas, and there certainly aren't any lawyers who look like me. Mm -hmm. And so growing up, that dream of becoming a lawyer, it began to seem like it was out of my reach, you know, out of my league, something I couldn't do. And so I read a book in high school, a B.B. Moore Campbell book called Brothers and Sisters. And in the book, the protagonist was a black woman who worked at a bank
1: Hmm. and
2: she seemed to have a successful career. Her colleagues were VPs and they were successful. So I said, "Okay, I'm good at math. I'm going to go to college and, and work at a bank. And so that's what I did. That's how I majored in accounting. I became a certified public accountant, went and worked at Price Waterhouse Coopers, but always on the fringe was that dream of becoming a lawyer. And my mother was in prison at this time. And so I was borrowing the books from one of my friends to study for the CPA exam because I was trying to help take care of my sister, sending my mom money for her commissary in prison. And I just kind of ran the idea by him to see what he would say. And I said, Hey, you know, I'm thinking about going to law school. And he said, oh, Brittany, you should definitely go to law school. He said, actually, I'm starting law school at SMU in Dallas in the fall. And I was so happy for him. But I remember thinking, wait a minute, if he can go to law school, I know nah. I can <laughs> go to law school.
0: <laughs> and
2: that, that proximity, that representation, it shifted. And I started, once I got through the CPA exam, I set out on the path.
0: You know, it is so funny how just seeing somebody close to you do it. There was an African-American student at Vanderbilt University who had gotten accepted to Stanford Law School. And this is in the 80s. You know, I was like, wow, you know, that's a really big deal. I even cut the article out of the student newspaper that she had gotten accepted to Stanford Law School. Now, her name was Michelle Alexander, who's <laughs> gone on to become, you know, one of the, you know, she wrote the book, The New Jim Crow, whatever. But this time she was just a student. But the fact that she had gone to Stanford— made me feel like I could go to a fancy law school as well. I wound up going to Yale. But it's very difficult for people to understand when you come from a community where the people who look like you aren't in those positions, you just subconsciously assume I can't get there. So when you see one person do it, then you can do it. So, you know, and and you've become that person for a lot of people. You are somebody who people look to is like, wow, this woman is getting people out of jail. She's starting companies. She's writing books. I mean, so you are that inspirational figure for a lot of people. And I want to just walk through some of the things that you have done. It takes courage to, to step outside of what society expects. It takes courage to challenge the system. It takes courage to reach across party lines and racial lines and class lines You do it all the time. Talk a little bit about the work that you did during the Obama years of getting people freed from that system.
2: When I was a 1L in law school, President Barack Obama was elected and sworn in, and it was just like a new day, a new dawn. And I remember that semester I took a critical race theory course in law school, you know, a course that's analyzing the intersection between the race and the law. And I was writing my paper about the disparity in sentencing between powder cocaine and crack cocaine. And at the time, you know, the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act ushered in mandatory minimums, but it also ushered in this 100 to 1 ratio on the federal level, which means you could have 500 grams of powder cocaine. I could have only five grams of crack cocaine, and we're going to receive the same sentence in prison. You know, and it's not lost on anybody that more affluent white people were using powder cocaine and crack cocaine was running rampant through communities of color. And this created this hugely disproportionate number of black and brown people in federal prison for drugs. And I was writing this paper, but I knew something was missing. And that was the heartbeats, the human element. And I did this random search one night in the Underwood Law Library at SMU in Dallas, and the case of a woman named Sharonda Jones popped up. And through this random search, I went down a rabbit hole of learning about Sharonda Jones. Sharonda was serving a life sentence in federal prison for drugs. She had never been arrested before. And I remember thinking, okay, there has to be more to this story, right? Is there like an international trafficking component here? You know, what's there? But it wasn't. Sharonda was a daughter of the Black South like me, Except I was in law school and she was serving her 10th year of this life without parole sentence.
0: When we say life without parole, I think people have to understand. That means no matter what you do in prison, you are going to die in prison. You have no chance for any kind of redemption.
2: Zero. And that's what I wanted to really show in the paper, that life without parole is the second most severe penalty permitted by law in America. It it really screams a person is beyond hope, beyond redemption, and it, it suffocates mass potential as it buries people alive. And in Sharonda's case, I mean, she was serving the same amount of time in prison as the Unabomber. And so something about her case, man, it just tugged at my soul. You know, I wanted to do what I could. I wrote her. I told her I was a law student, that I was going to practice corporate law. I knew next to nothing about criminal law, but I wanted to help her get out of prison. And she wrote me back, very nonchalant, like Wishing me well in my studies, almost like, yeah, right. You know, how are you going to get me out of here? So many lawyers have actually said it. And I did. I graduated law school. I went to practice corporate law and I worked pro bono at night to to work to get Sharonda Jones out of prison and and realizing our only avenue was going to be clemency from the president of the United States.
0: Well, that's how I think we met each other. You were this young crusading person who left the corporate law behind to try to get the obama administration to grant more clemencies to people that you now clemency means uh it's it's a check and a balance in our system sometimes judges get it wrong sometimes juries get it wrong sometimes the law itself is not perfect and yet we have this one fail-safe device where a governor or a president can review and grant clemency it's sort of an act of grace an act of mercy an act of correction for injustice and here you have barack obama my my hero your hero in the white house Uh, But it wasn't easy to even in those situations, those circumstances to get clemency. Talk a little bit about the challenge that even when the the president is somebody more aligned with you, it's still hard.
2: It's extremely hard. You know, as you mentioned, clemency is where justice meets mercy. And it's this exclusive power granted to presidents through our constitution where it gives presidents a chance to restore a sense of fairness that should be at the heart of the criminal legal system. And I I say all the time, I was doing clemency before clemency was cool, you know, and really (laughs) trying to get people to see the heartbeats. And unfortunately, there was some years of us being underwhelmed by the number of clemencies that President Obama was granting, and even under his historic clemency initiative. And things started to pick up. He began to grant more clemencies and more clemencies, or even... His legacy, he has more clemencies than any modern day president combined, you know, but there were so many people, so many people deserving of this mercy. And it was it was really challenging.
0: You know, a big point in this podcast is people who want to make a difference, people who are looking for solutions and answers, people who haven't given in to the cynicism and the despair and knowing you have to reach across certain lines to get certain things done. Sometimes. Though, it's even within our own camps and communities, we have to reach and push. Um, you were in a tough spot. I remember we actually did some rallies outside the White House. <laughs> you know, it wasn't just you know sitting down and holding hands and singing "kumbaya." You said, "Look, we had to." Yeah, and you and you had a, a phrase and a slogan that I've now just made my own. You said, "There's nothing more urgent than freedom." Talk about that moment as a, the days are ticking down to the end of the Obama administration, and you have to make a decision: Are you going to go public? And start doing public rallies versus, you know, continuing to work the inside track. Talk about that decision to go from the the inside track of being the lawyer to being the outside track of leading rallies outside of the Obama White House.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it was like an unconscious decision that was made just in the name of freedom. You know, as you mentioned, I was a corporate lawyer and it was difficult to leave that, you know, to jump into this. And I remember my dad, he said, Brittany, stop worrying about the challenges. And imagine the possibilities instead. And in that moment, I realized this is my time to fly from the comfort of the corporate nest. And, you know, really leaving financial security and I enjoyed my job. I was climbing the corporate ladder, you know, and imagining the possibilities. It sticks with me today. And even then, uh, what if, what if we brought families to the doorsteps? What are the possibilities of that? Finding community in each other, you know, and also sometimes it takes for that person to really push us outside of our comfort zones, you know, and Ben, that was you.
1: Mm.
2: I was a corporate lawyer. I mm. was doing cases. I'm like, I'm not an organizer, you know, how am I going to run this campaign and design it, you know, and you really encouraged me to to do that yeah. in a way that I don't know that you'll ever realize mm, that impact very, very, of and how nervous I was and how fearful I was of like oh wow you know this is <laughs> brand new world but we did it in the name of people we did it in the name of love you know and a lot of people were free because of it
0: yeah well if you were nervous it didn't show I mean you you, <laughs> you were you were fired up and I really do credit you with getting the the focus put on clemency because I think the Obama administration wanted to do it. But there's so many demands on a White House, having worked in a White House briefly and having worked with many White Houses. There's so many things that go on and things can get pushed to the back burner and you wouldn't let that happen. And I think that's really, uh, really, really remarkable. You you were able to get several people freed uh, in that whole mix. And uh, what was the final number for you, for you individually?
2: Individually under President Obama, it was seven and working to train thousands of lawyers. I helped yes. with the Clemency Project on their screening committee and just trying to train lawyers across the country.
0: So you, you were a, a force multiplier by getting more people involved and helping more people take on more cases. You know, then when we get to the to the Trump years, those are tough years for progressives, for people who, you know, come from you know, more of, of the liberal side. You know, I was part of the team that worked to get the First Step Act passed, you initially had some hesitation about the First Step Act. What, what were your concerns? Because uh, you weren't by yourself. What were your concerns as we were trying to get that, that piece of legislation done?
2: Yeah, my just wholehearted concerns was initially the First Step Act did not include any sentencing reform, which meant that a lot of people were not going to get out of prison. And then when it did, it was not retroactive. And so then there was some retroactivity that came to certain pieces of it. And it was more about ensuring that the legislation actually unlocked prison cages, you know? And so it was definitely a time, you know, amongst all of us where we're we're pushing for as much as we can get and then realizing what we're up against and then understanding that the first step out can free people. And that is most important.
0: Yeah. yeah. You know, it was uh a, It's a very, very grueling process because to get it through the House, it was small. The House bill was small. At the time, I said, look, you know, you're trying to get a a camel in a a teapot right now. Let me just get through the House with what I can get through, and then we'll get to the Senate. We can get a little bit more done, and we'll come back. And so that that push and that pull of we need more is a part of that whole process. As you look back now, as a bill did get improved and finally get passed, you've had some success with it.
2: Lots of success with it, you know, and with the work that, that I do now and I left, I started the Buried Alive Project with Sharonda Jones, who is free, and In my client, movie. Corey Jacobs. We co-founded the Buried Alive Project to reach back to help free people who were serving these unjust sentences like they were. And these are people who have served more than enough time. I mean, we're, we're freeing people with life without parole sentences. That is truly life-saving work.
0: It's really, really important. And now the other thing that we always look for is, you know, places where there have been unlikely alliances, unlikely support. You know, people always assume that if you're a black person working for justice, it's just going to be you and two other black people against the world. Nobody's going to come to help. But I think, you know, you've been remarkable in getting support from all kinds of places. Talk about your your relationship with Doug Deason. Tell us who Doug Deason is and and how you guys have been able to work together at times.
2: Yeah, Doug Deason is fellow Texan very conservative, you know, definitely (laughs) different ideologies. But we do agree that the criminal legal system is in dire need of transformation. And so his family contributed to SMU, my alma mater, and the new decent criminal justice reform center, you know, and I was their first practitioner in residence. And so a lot of people don't know my first trip to the Trump White House. To talk about clemencies was with Doug Deason, and he ensured that I was in the room, that I had a seat at the table, and that I was really bringing frontline perspective to the table.
0: How did you guys even know each other? I mean, just, just give a little bit of the, hum- the human, the the heartbeats on that, as you would call it.
2: We just so happened to be sitting next to each other at a table at a fundraiser in Dallas while I was still a corporate lawyer for this Criminal justice reform organization in Dallas. And we sparked a conversation. I was still in corporate, was thinking about potentially leaving at the time. And when he found out I was leaving and the dean found out I was leaving, I was one of the first phone calls they made to, to come help get the center off the ground with Pamela Metzger.
0: Look, when you, you know, Doug Deason is, is as you said, he's very conservative, big heart, but very conservative. <laughs> and when you think about just that chance or divinely inspired encounter the fact that he was willing to talk to you as a human being you' willing to talk to him as a human being you discovered this whole area of common ground and look at what's come from it I mean it's it's amazing uh some of the things that uh, he's done that you've done you guys have done together what advice would you have for people I mean these are so polarizing times you have a black liberal woman and a white conservative man you automatically think it's going to be a food fight I mean, how, how are you able to, to bridge those those kind of divides and differences
2: the most important way that I keep at the forefront of my mind is human lives are at stake. And I think about my mom, and I think about my uncles and family members and, and my family of the clients that I've held free. And in those moments, I understand that I do not have the privilege to be partisan. Mm. And I understand that my clients, they don't care who is in office, <laughs> who lets them go, you know, and who am I? to prevent that because I don't agree with many of the, the issues that, that are brought forth. You know, it, it it's all about the people for me. And and I don't want to go trade places with them and be in that cell until a new administration comes that I agree <laughs> with that can free. I don't want to. So let's just work together. Let's free people. You know, let's agree to disagree when we need to. But when it comes to something like getting people out of prison and the need to completely transform this system, that idea of of not working together. You know, we have to. It's just beyond legitimate debate at this point.
0: Your words are so powerful. I don't have the privilege to be a partisan.
1: Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation At Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation.
0: On the Nintendo Switch system, there's so many worlds you can explore. Like
2: Hyrule, where I can fight enemies and save the kingdom with Link.
0: (laughs) That sounds adventurous.
2: Or my very own island in Animal Crossing
1: New Horizons, where I can fish whenever I want.
0: size of that thing you can find even more worlds to explore on the nintendo switch system games rated e to e10 plus games and systems sold separately another bridge that you crossed is the bridge between frontline activism and global celebrity in terms of your incredible relationship with kim kardashian i get a lot of notoriety for knowing her but i would have never known her except for you uh, you were the person who was working with Miss Alice Johnson, one of the people you were you were trying to get out during the Obama years, finally were successful during the Trump years. Once you guys got her out, my understanding is that you, you were responsible for me getting a chance to interview her. Talk about that a little bit.
2: Yeah. You know, she was looking for a platform. You know, she was wanting to start using her voice more. Alice did that video, you know, a media video with Mike.com, and it went viral. And Kim was not only moved to tears when she saw it, she was moved to action. And she wanted to start, you know, using her voice more to amplify these issues. And we were in a group chat, you know, Sean Holly and Jennifer Turner, other members of the team and thinking about a platform for her to go on. I was like, oh, you got to go on the Van Jones show, you know, Mm -hmm. and we we went from there and great things have come from it.
0: Really, because I don't think she really knew who I was, but because you knew my heart and we had worked together and I had a, a television show. You, you connected those two dots. And just that, just you, just rather than saying, hey, let's get you on the biggest name that you can find, let's get you on with somebody who actually understands the issues and cares. That, just bringing that level of integrity to the conversation and her trusting you put me and Kim in Kim in relationship. You know, people criticize Kim and, and you know, there's been, you know, controversy you know, that, you know, Kim is, you know, clout chasing and stealing the spotlight from black women, those type of things. And that puts you in a, some, something of a, of a of a tough spot. How do you respond to those kinds of criticism and concerns that Kim needs to pipe down and quit stealing credit from black women?
2: I adore Kim. Kim came in and used her platform in a way that was needed and necessary. And she's always been very upfront and candid about the story, you know, and her role in the story. You know, I think sometimes the media and people can sensationalize things in a way that puts all the spotlight on the celebrity, even when that's not the intent of the celebrity. And my thing with that is just fully understanding that we cannot be blinded (laughs) by the spotlight of celebrity and refuse to see the people beyond that spotlight that are sitting in prison that need to be free. And I think that it is quite obvious that we've done some great work together, and she's always been candid about that.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's one of the things that I like the most about Kim is that she really doesn't want it to be about her. But she's also not dumb to think, well, I can help more by being quiet. She has more followers on Instagram than a lot of countries have citizens. I think she's got like 300 million followers. I don't think you want her to be quiet with those followers. But she's also never run out ahead of the movement. She's never just gone out there and said, I care about this case and I'm going to do something. She always works so closely with the family. She works so closely with the lawyers. She works so closely with the frontline people.
2: Every time, you know, yeah. and and I, I say that even just crediting her, you know, no one could ever get me to say anything negative about her because she came in at a time and supported my work financially with her voice when many people were not. And so that is very important. And also, We are in an age where we have to trust black women, you know, and we want to credit black women. And so we have to trust that this black woman, Brittany K. Barnett, is not allowing herself to be used in that way. You know, (laughs) we're all working in concert. We're all doing this in a way that is raising awareness and getting a lot of people out of prison.
0: Now, speaking of, of your own voice and your own platform, you wrote a book that is a beautiful, beautiful testimony to your journey and it's been not only is it, you know sold a gazillion copies, it also was I think it was acclaimed as like the book of the year, it's
2: Amazon's number one best book of 2020.
0: So you know you you have your own platform that you're developing. Talk a little bit about that decision. What what made you decide to sit down in the middle of all the things that you're doing, all the fights you're fighting, and write a book, and not only a book, a great book.
2: I never wanted to write a book. <laughs> I'll preface with that. But I knew we were making history and a remarkable story. And my clients really pushed me to tell our story. You mm. really pushed me to tell the story. You know, and, and for me, understanding how important it is for us to tell our own stories. One, because history shows just how tragic that can be when we leave that task to other people. And really having that front line voice you know and so i have always been a great writer but i i didn't necessarily enjoy writing and i'll never forget the piece of advice you gave me you know and i'm going to mess this quote up so correct me but you were essentially saying brittany you're searching in the dark for a key to a door that's wide open. Because I'm like, man, I'm sitting here for three hours. I'm typing three sentences. You know, this is this is painful for me. It's gonna take me 30 years to write this book. But that shifted something in me. You said, Brittany, you're a good speaker, you're a great orator. Speak the book. And I did, and I found a dear friend who would interview me. We would have we had forty hours of tape of her interviewing me. If I said I was going to See Sharonda Jones. She's like, what did you wear? What was the weather like that day? What emotions did you feel from the prison visit room? And we transcribed all of this audio. And it just made it that much more manageable. And that speaking it really helped. And so I said, I'm if I'm gonna write this book, I'm gonna tell my truth in all of its purity, and I'm gonna tell the truth about racial injustice that bleeds through America's criminal legal system. I'm gonna tell the truth about the people who are in cages in this country and their brilliance Mm. that I've witnessed and this genius behind bars. And you know what else? I'm going to write this book for young Black girls in the South in hopes they see themselves through me and be encouraged and empowered to dream their biggest dreams.
0: I'm glad that I asked this question because there's so many different ways to do something. People assume if you're going to write a book, you have to be in a basement by yourself you know, with a, with a typewriter and, and, and a candle, <laughs> and, you know. And, you know, you, you found a way to do it in a more collaborative way, in a way that was more fun for you, um, and a way that really, really worked. And that quote is from a song written by Sting for the police. And the, the quote is, The darkness makes me fumble for a key to a door that's wide open. And that is so true in life. A lot of times we be like struggling and struggling. It's like, and honey, the door is open. You don't even need the key. It's just standing there. The, the stories that you have in yourself and that voice that you have, I mean, it's just it's just waiting to be poured out. And, and now it has been poured out. But, you know, you don't just stop with talking about it. You don't just stop with the courtroom aspect of it. You know, one of the other quotes from you is that, you know, you're tired of seeing people released from prison into poverty and that there's not the economic opportunities uh, that people deserve. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you're doing? Because here's another boundary that you've stepped over to go from being an advocate to being an entrepreneur. Can you talk about the trucking company and all the other things that you're doing so innovative to make sure that you aren't freeing people from prison into poverty?
2: Yes, absolutely. You know, Robert Smith, you know, who's a, a hero of mine, he's always telling us to ponder our highest and best use on this earth as a human being. And I I hear him speak and I hear this common thread through his words. And that for me is seeing my path from the corporate side, seeing my path leaving to do this work, seeing my path of having a mother who's incarcerated. And truly, as I mentioned, some of the most brilliant people I've ever met have been my clients. And I don't say that lightly. And, and, I, and I see that we can we can. We can't keep rescuing people from prison and restoring them to poverty. So it's not just about freeing people, it's about what are we freeing them into. And then doing this in a way for me that produces what I want to call sustainable liberation. And sustainable liberation for me includes economic freedom, equity, and ensuring that justice impacted people are put in positions to be able to, thrive, not just survive. And so what I was doing is I took a step back and I was looking through the landscape, you know, and and my journey. And it always just seems like even with all the people I freed, even with the mass campaigning, even with the creating healing spaces for women and girls impacted by the system, it always seemed like freedom is just still a little out of reach. You know, and so I started to think of my highest and best use in this moment, in this time, and I recently launched a couple of years ago the Manifest Freedom Fund, where we've deployed over $300,000 so far in non dilutive capital to justice impacted entrepreneurs, including a formerly incarcerated person with a trucking company. We have trucks going across the country right now, including Sharonda Jones's food truck. She was an amazing cook in prison and, and before her food truck called Fed Up will <laughs> launch in a couple of, a couple of months. And, And Chris Young, a client who was recently released, he had a phenomenal idea in prison for an app, mental health app, to help youth of color, you know, reduce the isolating effects of poverty and trauma. And Chris, his brother died by suicide when Chris was 18. His brother was only 21. And through this experience, while he was in prison for 10 years, he visualized and dreamed up this remarkable idea for this app that he's calling Like You. I'm like you. And it's phenomenal. And so we're working through the Manifest Freedom Fund. I'm actually fundraising right now to be able to build a cohort of about 8 to 10 just as impacted tech startup entrepreneurs to be able to get significant capital and resources and a network and advisors. To show the world changing impact that justice impacted people can have when they're able to flourish, you know, and I, I took a look at the landscape and there's great programs that are helping with entrepreneurship and they're doing remarkable work, but a lot of them are, you know, helping to get gainful employment, which we need. But I want to have a program where we're nurturing innovation and mm-hmm. entrepreneurship and creativity on a big level. I want my own Peter Till fellows, you know, <laughs> my own mm-hmm. Alexis O'Hanen fellows. They're there and I'm going to find them and Manifest Freedom Fund. We're going to manifest freedom for a lot of people. And I'm excited about it, man. I want to help create generational wealth for people coming out because they're going to be the ones who are going to get back to their communities. And, and I tell people all the time, freedom is multidimensional. It does not always have to come from Capitol Hill, you know, or people who move with no sense of urgency, even when human lives are at stake. The people we are helping to free, you know, like Chris Sean, like Alice Johnson and Sharonda Jones, they are helping create systemic change as well. And we should look up on their their release from prison as a gift. Mm-hmm. And as a mm-hmm. tremendous opportunity, you know, for societal renewal, and so I'm, um, I'm excited for this pivot. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the tech space. I'm excited about venture capital, and, and doing it in a way that we can help shift the paradigm and change the narrative of what what freedom looks like.
0: You know, when you were studying for your accounting exam, who'd have ever thought? that you would go from that to all these different adventures and crazy things that you've done and working with the, you know, the white house and the Kardashians and everything else to come right back to business. But now with a a, a purpose, that's even bigger than you could have ever imagined. One of the reasons that you do what you do is because of the human part. And I want to just in where we started women behind bars and mothers separated from daughters, help people understand what is actually happening to women behind bars, to mothers behind bars, what that does to families, especially that mother-daughter relationship, and what you have done to try to heal some of that.
2: Many people don't know that women are among the fastest growing incarcerated population. I mean, the number of women incarcerated has increased over 700% in the past 30, 35 years. And in Texas, where I'm located, we incarcerate more women by sheer number than any other state in the country. There are twelve to fourteen women's prisons in Texas compared to two in Tennessee, you know, or or one in Mississippi. And so through that, through my experience of having a mother in prison, you know, I remember those visits with my mom and understanding that even though I was a young adult, what I did have in common with other kids and young girls visiting their moms was that we loved our mamas. And that love was unconditional. And so through that experience, over 10 years ago now, I created Girls Embracing Mothers, where we work to really create a safe space for intergenerational healing for women and girls impacted by the criminal legal system and do it in a way that cultivates love and, and humanity and also empowers them to be the center and leading any movement and any work that surrounds them. You know, And through our work with Girls Embracing Mothers, we partner with Texas Women's Prisons. We take girls to visit their mothers every single month. You know, we do an annual summer camp. We're having our fifth annual camp this summer. And we've also started to focus on the sustainable liberation aspect that I'm pushing for. You know, we've been having a cohort of teaching tech skills to formerly incarcerated women to prepare them for entry-level tech jobs. You know, we're going to do some logistics. We're going to do entrepreneurship. But understanding that what we're doing is what we call a two-gen model, two-generational approach to help with this healing that comes from the devastation. Of mass incarceration and doing this through, you know, my own lived experience. You know, my mom's free; she's been home for fourteen years now, doing amazing. She's a firecracker. She, she's actually a nurse at a drug recovery center. But we do this work because this work is us.
0: You know, I just admire you so much, and I appreciate you so much. And I'm just you know, like so many people, I'm just inspired and challenged. I want people in the uncommon ground community to be encouraged. And to be inspired. These problems are hard, but, you know, no pressure, no diamonds. You know, it's, it's, when, it's when we put ourselves into the situations that look impossible. That's when the possibility shows up. It is impossible from the couch. <laughs> it is impossible when you just, you know, doom scrolling in social media at 2 o'clock in the morning. But, you know, you make a phone call, you try something, you have a crazy idea, it doesn't work, but you met somebody and then you can help them and they help you. And all of a sudden, you know, you have a community of people. I mean, we got together, it was a little handful of us, you know, (laughs) going up against crazy odds. And yet, you know, here you are. So I just want to thank you so much for what you're doing, for who you are. Um, You mentioned the disparity between crack and powder cocaine. And that went from 100 to 1, which is terrible, then to 18 to 1 under Obama, which was an improvement, to then 18 to 1 to 1 retroactive, I believe, under Trump. And now under Biden, it may just go away and be with the Equal Act one to one. So a 30 year journey. But even that injustice, that was one of the things that brought you into this fight with consistent effort and bipartisan work. We may actually be able to to reverse that as well.
2: Yes, I sure hope so. We're watching the Equal Act. We're hoping and praying it passes soon. And, you know, it would surely immediately release thousands of people.
0: Well, listen, thank you. You'll you'll do more amazing stuff, and we'll have you back soon. And we appreciate you.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: We see the beauty of hope. That spirit is so beautiful.
2: Those who become American citizens love this country even more. And that's why the Statue of Liberty lifts her lamp, to welcome them to the Golden Door.
0: It's really amazing what one person can do if they decide to turn their pain into purpose. I mean, a lot of people have a parent in prison in this country, way more than we recognize. We have the biggest prison system in the history of the world, peacetime. So that's millions and millions of families. And it's a devastating experience and it can completely crush children. It's one of the reasons why we should be a lot more hesitant to put moms behind bars in the first place, especially for minor stuff, because you're not just hurting that the, the the parent, you're hurting a whole bunch of kids often. And you think about that, and you know, obviously Brittany was an adult kid, so she had a little bit, you know, more time to build herself up and be able to t- to take that blow. But it's a real blow. And if you want to know how big a blow it is, look at what she's done with her life. She took that pain, she turned it into purpose, and she's helped so many people. And I think, you know, my hope is that we can all just be encouraged by people like her. The bad stuff in our lives gives us empathy. It gives us an understanding that everybody doesn't have a good day. People make decisions that they regret. I don't care who you are, how much money you have, how smart you are, you can't change anything you did yesterday. And so she has dedicated herself to giving a whole lot of people much better tomorrows. Um, because of what happened in her yesterday. And I just think it's really moving and really impressive. And I think sometimes people go down the rabbit hole of saying, why do people keep saying black all the time and women all the time and, you know, identity politics? And, you know, people can go too far with that stuff. But there is something missing from our public dialogue when people like Brittany Barnett are not household names. She's doing the frontline work. She's being innovative. She's being creative. She's using capital. She's using technology. She's using the law She's using hugs, using whatever she's got to make a tremendous difference. And she knows stuff that other people don't know. And it's obvious when you hear her voice. It's obvious when you read her words that she has tapped into a wellspring of, of wisdom and genius and insight that the country needs. And that is not completely divorced from the fact that she's a young black woman from the South whose mom went to prison. There are aspects of our humanity that do open certain gateways of understanding. And I think all we're asking for is that we just keep making the table bigger for more voices. I don't think anybody is trying to take a, a seat away from anybody. Um, if you got a seat at the table, that's great. But let's pull up more chairs and let's hear from more voices. And just voices like hers are really, really rare. And I'm glad that she took the time to write the book, even though she was pretty creative in getting it done. She got it done. Uh, the book is called A Knock at Midnight, and Amazon uh, praised it. I think if you get it. You'll praise it too. Get your own copy and share it with other people. I think we need to hear from a lot more people like Brittany Barnett. This is Uncommon Ground with Van Jones. See you next time. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Taylor Williamson, Adesua Agbonile, and Lindsay Credible. Our managing producers are Laura D and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for this show is led by Alice Zoe, Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Moraes, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Petherbridge. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Alex John Burns, Seven McDonald, Drew Schwendeman, Brianna Jones, Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Carrie McCarron, Joe McMillan, Steph Walkeen, Vanessa Reppert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Louie, and Chris Jackman Hey prime members you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad free on Amazon Music download the Amazon Music app today or you can listen ad free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts Before you go tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com/survey
1: Murder on My Mind a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus and new evidence that may place YNW Mellie at the scene of the crime, his trial has been paused indefinitely. With countless twists and turns, Law & Crime covers all angles of the case and begs the question, is this young artist the victim of a witch hunt or a silver-tongued devil who's evil to the core? Listen to Murder on My Mind exclusively and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.